Rainforest Café with Dennis McKenna. Hello and welcome. My name is Casey McFarland and you are listening to the Brainforest Café with Dennis McKenna. Today we have two very special guests, Shaheen Etmanan and Jonathan Liu. Shaheen Etmanan is the founder of Visana, a CNS drug discovery biotech company focused on polypharmacology of natural neuropharmaceuticals for mental wellness treatment. Shaheen is an inventor and repeat founder with a portfolio access across multiple industries. He holds a PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Calgary. Jonathan Liu is the co-founder of Vicenna, a CNS drug discovery company focused on polypharmacology with naturally extracted and purified alkaloid isolates. Jonathan is an expert generalist whose multidisciplinary career includes roles as a corporate manager, venture investor, and early stage operating executive. He is a graduate from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and received a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering from Cornell University. Welcome everyone, thank you for being here. I'm really happy that we were able to uh, invite you and present this material and uh, and focus on this really very promising uh, set of compounds. You know, the, the beta-carbolines, as you already know, are structurally very diverse and represent a, a variety of different pharmacologies, far beyond simply monoamine oxidase inhibitors, as it turns out. So, so you've you pioneered this, and you've uh, built your company around with a focus on these compounds, among other things, I assume. But, but it's good that that's a central focus of what Vicina is. Uh, is all about. So tell me a bit about the company and what led you into this. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, it was our pleasure and you were our inspiration, uh, mostly when it comes to beta carbonines, just reading your work from back in the day. Uh, and then the whole movement around the psychedelic renaissance that's happening in the past like five years. Um, kind of, it was an intersection. It was a very inter interesting intersection, and specifically, uh, John and I's uh, Eastern background and this this uh, kind of cavity and gap that we saw that that exists in this space. That was the main inspiration for uh, for just submitting uh, those proposals, and we were very lucky that they were accepted. And then we were exposed uh, with with this knowledge to be to be shared and distributed. So we we sent a started uh, in 2019 with the focus of uh, extraction of different alkaloids from plants. Uh, the extraction technology was was what we started with, uh, but when kind of like 2020, the uh, psychedelic industry started to heat up. Like we kind of moved toward other other alkaloids and extraction, and then. Um, and then from there into basically exploring what was some of these plants that are coming from the east that are less studied in the west and getting into their pharmacology and drug discovery. So that is where where we started with from and um, basically last year that was the time that we, we we put most of our effort in terms of identifying some of the compounds that are on the top of them there were beta carbonates that as you said, uh, the beta carbons are very well known in the context of ayahuasca, uh, but uh, and mostly as an MAOI or monoamino oxidase inhibitors, but not further than that. And uh, with some of the diggings that John and I have done in the uh, basically the ethnopharmacology of uh, like the the Iran region and China and those kind of Middle East and West Asia or East Asia, this was. We just like saw these traces of like how these compounds were used by our ancestors and for different purposes, which at the end of the day, it was just uh, around human transcendence, you know, and kind of like exploring more of the consciousness. So this was a little bit about how how we started with, but uh, Vicena is a drug discovery company. As we said last year, we were trying to mostly push toward uh, becoming a uh, kind of like a drug development, um, um, like uh, pharmaceutical company, but uh, we are going to share a little bit more about this story, but like kind of like half in the way we decided that um, 
you know, it's better to, uh, to see what we can bring into market immediately, which the beta carbons, because they're fully non-scheduled in the US was on top of, uh, our, our list. So with that, we, uh, launched a line of nootropic supplements called Magi, uh, or Magi ancestral supplements that they're coming from the Eastern plants. Uh, these formulations are inspired by the, the wisdom of the Magi who were the Zoroastrian priests of ancient Iran. Uh, and this was their legacy in use of, uh, psychoactive and hallucinogenic, you know, plants to access a you know, higher state of consciousness and mental wellness, which is very interesting, uh, most in pursuit of the enlightenment and a concept called the good mind or Vokumana, which I can talk more about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Shaheen, uh, for, for obviously, I think I, I, I must interject with the one word that everyone probably knows from that, which is the Magi. Who were the Magi? And since we mm -hmm. just celebrated Christmas of these three wise men, maybe we want to talk a little bit more about, uh, their gift of psychoactive plants at the birth of Jesus, which is what they're mostly known for. Yes, yeah. I'd like to hear more about that. Of course, everyone knows about the Magi and the whole myth of the Magi. In fact, uh, a few days ago was the, in the Christian calendar, the Feast of the Epiphany, which in many in the Middle East, in Eastern Orthodox and so on, that is Christmas. And as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but our audience may not know, but the Feast of the Epiphany supposedly was when the Magi got to Bethlehem and they brought their gifts to the baby Jesus. And that was the actual Christmas. You know, if I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting that. Uh, uh, and you're saying that the gifts that they brought, I thought it was gold and rubies and that kind of thing. It was psychoactive plants. <laughs> Medicines, you're telling me? <laughs> well, there was gold, but uh, so 33% was something of monetary value. The other 66% <laughs> was uh, what we know, frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense um, and myrrh, right, right. Yeah. Well, the, the, the word Magi, it's, it's like the Greek referral to this wise man, you know, that are, it's kind of like these were the, the, the story doesn't say that like where the Magi came from, you know, to find the nativity of, of the baby Jesus. But so basically they come from, from East that the world Magi is actually come, come from a Magi, which is the plural form of magus or, or mog in Farsi, which is the, basically these are the Zoroastrian priests of ancient Iran. And, um, they had a, like, they were kind of counted as wise men, but by the Greek, they, they were, uh, like known as Magi because they had this supernatural, uh, power of, let's say, receiving knowledge from astrology. And, and that was how they basically found, found the, the nativity. And like somehow they were also referred to uh, by Greek as sorcerers. So that's that's where the word magic come from. So magic is art of magi. That's what I thought. The the magic is comes from the root of magi. And magi, the magi were, if the magi were Zoroastrian priests, right? But they were also uh, sorcerers. You say, or were would you? Would it be accurate to say that they were kind of shaman? I mean, do they yeah. do hit that that sort of uh, archetype? They were people knowledgeable about the use of medicines and plants, particularly psychoactive plants, and they were effectively doctors as well as priests, or is that inaccurate? Yeah, so basically they, before Zoroaster, the pre-Zoroastrian uh, religions in Iran, they were dominated by, uh, you know, communities of ecstatic priests and warriors. So that's so basically shamanic practices and accessing to this ecstatic trance state was as a part of, you know, the, the practices that they had. So this is the, what I've read is like just being known as sorcerers was the, they refer of, of Greek into the knowledge of the Magi, not necessarily that they were, you know, they were kind of like always, uh, trying to stay from sorcery at, or, you know, witchcraft as the, 
basically the, the distinction is that like the Magi were the righteous people and that's where you know the distinction happens that like the witchcraft you know is separate from the art of uh, of accessing you know this ecstatic uh, states right so this, they perform this you know shamanic ecstasies you know and otherworldly journeys to encounter you know uh, deities and to receive reassurance you know about the truth of their their faith so that's where that's where the source of these practices come from i see i see so on the on the uh, ethnopharmacology side of this this picture as you know in south america the beta carbolines are potentiators of uh, other plants that contain dmt which are which is not orally active in the absence of those beta of those beta carbolines of those mam inhibitors is there any similar pharmacology in these uh, zoroastrian medicines any reason to think that they may have utilized plants containing dmt in combination with these beta carbolines i know this is probably a loaded questions but i have to ask it <laughs> well you know nobody knows what what was the, the the real combination right but it's just that the only way to understand some of those is uh, you know the definition of these some of these subjective states that they experienced and uh, what I can conclude from most of our research is that uh, there were not just like one simple, you know, you know, uh, plant or just like a simple, you know, botanical identity. Right. Most of them, there were mixtures, and there were mixture for different, you know, rituals, and um, so there was a big complexity, and they knew exactly like what they were mixing with each other, what was the dose, or what kind of, you know, ritual. Um, but specifically about Homa uh, or Hom in Farsi, you know, like Hom um, is is today is referred to a plant called ephedra in Iran. You know, which ephedra is widely spread in the flora of like northeast Iran as well as like China and and those regions. And that is the plant that Zoroastrians of today are taking as as Hom. You know, which is the the Hom or Soma or Homa. The word means to press out. Basically, they, it, it was an extract. So they were just like using the pestle and mortar to get these active compounds out of these plants or the plant mixtures. And that was how uh, basically the, the coma. And they were also, it was just, they were drinking it and they were also burning it. So uh, there are there were two kinds of like, were, it was also used as an, as an incense. Mm. But back to like what it was and, and a comparison with ayahuasca uh, specifically around beta carbolines i should say that there has been a like very long uh research about the botanical identity of of homo or soma which yeah. as you know like uh Gordon wasson you know has a book about about soma specifically that he believes that soma is the amanita muscaria or fly agaric mushroom right right but you don't buy that. Homa was the real Soma, it, it, and it was it was more ancient than so than Soma, right? I mean, it came. Soma, Soma is is more ancient because um, basically the text from or like Rig Veda are older than the text from Avesta. So they're the text or those. These are basically po poems that they were just like reciting for over a thousand years and. And actually, David Flattery believes that because Avesta or Gotha was transcribed about a thousand years later than Rig Veda, uh, so this basically the referrals to to Homa are more accurate because it was transcribed about a thousand years later than what is what is available in in in, in Rig Veda. So based on um, so I can say I can tell you that maybe the botanical identity of Soma and Homa could be very different because the flora of India and Iran was different, and uh, based on that, specifically the work of uh, Homa and Farmaline by by David Flattery and Martin Schwartz from 1989 uh, is very is very um, is is a, is a paramount work in terms of like the fact that they separated these two and they looked into Homa very separately from the context of Soma. So David Flattery believes that Homa, 
home, basically Homo's main intoxicant or hallucinogenic intoxicant was pegonum permala or span. So that is where most of our research comes from because span is a very rich source of beta carbolines, specifically harmine and harmaline. And you can compare it with the, with the plant yahe or banisteriopsis copy in, in ayahuasca wine, which is a higher source of harmine and tetrahydrohormine as, as your pioneering work, uh, you know, referred to it back in, back in seventies. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where, that's where kind of like our business with the study of beta carbons, um, have become, you know, more and more, uh, deep in this, in this respect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're building on this traditional knowledge, but you're bringing the latest, most advanced tools of neuropharmacology to this, uh, neuroscience, drug discovery receptor science and all that. I mean, when you claim that Helma was a, is a hallucinogen, you know, the, I mean, the beta carbolines are not hallucinogenic in the way that, uh, that say psilocybin or DMT is, they're certainly not classical hallucinogens. Can you make the case that they are hallucinogenic or is that even a that and even I mean hallucinogen itself is a misnomer. You know, we don't yeah. like to use the word hallucinogen because it's inaccurate. You know, most of the classical you know hallucinogens uh, are, uh, don't cause hallucinations reliably anyway. If that's if that's the criterion, that's why I think the word psychedelic is coming back into the nomenclature, and psychedelics is a much broader term but maybe mm -hmm. you know it, it's vaguer but maybe more accurate because it means mind manifesting and the beta carbolates certainly could fall into that category they do manifest the mind like these other things do but not in the way that uh the tryptamines do for for example so uh can you talk a little bit about the phenomenology, the subjective effects, uh, and uh, to the degree that layman can understand it, you know, what's the pharma what are the subjective effects of these three different or four different uh, supplements you've developed, and and what's the basis of that? What what's the pharmacology behind that? You know, or uh, of course, you know, we're talking to it. We're not talking to pharmacologists or neuroscientists. We're talking to ordinary people like me, uh, you know, or even perhaps less familiar with pharmacology. But can you explain uh, a, a little bit about what the uh, pharmacology is behind this beta carboline chemistry? Absolutely. I, I'll leave that to John. But before before that, I, I want to just like um, make a distinction about like how beta carbolines uh, subjective effects are. And I guess whoever has taken ayahuasca can probably relate to that. So they are uh, by themselves uh, counted as onerophernic or the compounds that they are uh, kind of inducing a dreamy state or a dreamlike state. Basically, this is a state that has been referred to in most of the Zoroastrian texts or when the Zoroaster received his revelation or, you know, like some of the other uh, member of Magi, you know, that they had this like kind of like several days, you know, uh, of dreaming, you know, that they they basically had access to the realm of, you know, after death or to the realm of, you no know, collective unconscious as Jung, you know, uh, posits this. And uh, so this dreamy state, um, or we call it this like mindlessness, you know, that like you are in this numbness, but in this in this kind of dreamy state, you are exposed to a leap through your consciousness. So you get to receive something, you know, from, you know, the unknown, from the unconscious immediately. And you get to know, to know that, you know, in, 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 in basically in, in no time. So this is the effect that is related to the effect of beta carbolines. And from my own experience with ayahuasca, I think, um, that's exactly where this, like the realm of dream marries, you know, this high entropic, you know, flush of thoughts that you get under the, the tryptamines. And that's how it, 
that how that's how like experiences like ayahuasca experience is is bringing you know epiphanies or breakthroughs you know for people who are drinking these uh in a in a in a right setting but with i'll leave that you know into to john to talk more about like some of uh, our inspirations you know for bringing those effects into into magi okay so in some sense you could talk you could characterize these these uh, beta carboline formulations as onerogens you're familiar with that word mm-hmm. right something that brings on dreams or or stimulates dreams maybe that's a more accurate term to apply to these kinds of uh, medicines but but John let let me hear from you you're the pharmacologist of the team what can you tell us? The yeah, interesting thing by, uh, behind this here is not just what did the actual dream-like uh, experience provide for you, but particularly if you look back to so much of Eastern medicine and particularly traditional Chinese medicine, it was never one compound. This is why something like ayahuasca is always near and dear to my heart. It's a mixture of yeah. these plants, oftentimes plants from very disparate regions, that um, the, through a long series of experimentation, you know, humans discovered that they are very active together. Um, and, and certainly Chinese medicine was very much this way here, where very rarely would you find just a single plant or a single compound, um, this whole, you know, one target, one receptor, uh, you know, one drug uh, approach certainly never existed back then. Theirs was always going to be a mixture of different compounds. And um, in some ways, I'm a little disappointed actually to discover that there was not a history of beta-carboline or espan use in traditional China um, in, in the Xinjiang and, and Siberian provinces to the west. Uh, the plants does grow and and only in the last couple hundred years was there medicinal uses um, that go as far as things like um uh, as uh as as pesticides as well as uh, a variety of you know kind of like a, a panacea of different uh, health remedies that it was used for um but when i look back at some of the oldest Taoist texts what they were seeking was exactly the same as what the magi were which was this Ooh. pursuit of transcendence and this pursuit of of inner spirituality what they would call something more like an inner alchemy and they used a lot of different you know your years where it's interesting where words matter well we would not call hallucinogens or psychedelics in in china but that the specific word that we would use is is translated to mind altering which i think is very uh, appropriate and Given the um, the effects here, I had this deep hope that I would find uh, the use in some of these old texts of uh, of Espan or Paganum Harmala, but unfortunately, uh, there's many other plants and some that we've experimented with and done some combinations with. Um, but the the objective was always to reach this transcendence, which um, which the the state of dreaming while you're awake, which often uh, you can even look at as attainable through meditation, uh, is exactly that. And this was a goal of Taoist uh, alchemy as well, right? Absolutely. The, yeah. So, well, that's very interesting. Uh, so you think that the Taoists were on to some, some of these formulations, which may have included beta-carbolines, but the plants are not known. Is that is that basically what you can say? Or have you, I guess more specifically, have you stumbled on any plants in the Chinese pharmacopoeia that might point to this uh, that, uh, that we know from modern day studies might have had the uh, the right alkaloids or the right constituents. Yeah, only from the really recent and recent, of course, in uh, the span of Chinese history would be um, older than the United States, uh, you know, mm-hmm. past 300 years or so. But uh, given a, a, a five to six thousand year history of uh, Chinese medicine, there was not a, a longer use going back towards the, the time that Chinese medicine really started to take off, which is around you know, 200 BC. Right, right, right. Yeah, most of their compounds were much more uh, uh, focused upon more of the tropane classes, what we would call something like a delirient, um, which yeah. certainly are psychedelic. Right, and there are certainly uh, uh, elements of Chinese medicine that point toward mushrooms. Mushrooms apparently were held in high esteem, you know, like the Ling Chi, I think the Ling Zi, the yeah, Ling Zi. Elderba. Uh but not psychoactive mushrooms, but they may have been, you know, they may have also, in fact, they must have known about psychoactive mushrooms, but uh, I guess it's not in the pharmacopoeia, which is kind of interesting, kind of puzzling, actually. 
Well, there are psychedelic mushrooms that are in the pharmacopoeia, um, specifically the psilocybe, the azurin strains, and the cyanocin strains, were, were both, those grow very, very rapidly across, uh, across eastern China, um, and those were, were known to be used, um, the, given, given how some of the mushrooms, like the lingzi, or which, which is like a reishi mushroom, gets a lot of press, uh, we know that that's one that was used very, uh, very rapidly. Um, whereas something like the psilocybin-containing strains, they were used, but they weren't uh, with the, the nearly as prolific as um, as some of these non-psychedelic mushrooms. You know, naturally, it also becomes difficult to really translate when you look at just how illustrative some of the, the descriptions of the their trip reports are. Right. Um, you know, you're going to see spirits flying above the clouds, riding on top of dragons, and that's describing nothing except for just like a turkey tail mushroom. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so this use of the salasmis in China, this is documented. This is, this is, this is known. Yeah, yeah. There's a in in a couple of the different materia medicas. Um, um, no, this is known going back to about uh, I think seven or eight hundred years. Okay. Well, that's very that's very interesting. I mean that that also ties into this uh you know this this puzzling contemporary phenomenon which the uh, other gentlemen uh Colin Damnauer and, and uh Brian uh Edinger, Brin, yeah Brin, Brin, yeah they talked about the you know the the psychoactive uh, bolites or the putatively psychoactive bolites but it seems it doesn't from the description sound like psilocybin and apparently the chemistry is very elusive. You know, they're they're not reliably psychoactive, but you have these interesting trip reports. Uh, you know, about seeing the little people and that yeah. kind of thing, which is very interesting when you think about it, because the Yanomami Indians and other uh, groups that use the the hallucinogenic DMT-based snuffs in South America also have a whole mythology about how when you take the uh, when you take the stuff you see the little people and uh, you know there's a great deal of parallels to uh, uh, you know to to the reports from China anyway I know we're off on a tangent here we're not supposed to talk about Chinese medicine but <laughs> so tell us yeah what you'd like to about the uh, about the pharmacology chemistry of of your formulations or of these these beta carbolines yeah so back to the beta carbolines themselves i mean as we've long discussed they've widely been known uh, for their maoi properties and believe that was the only effect that they had um but when you do take them by themselves you know just having an maoi property would not result in having this this you know onophoronic dreamlike uh, state where you can have a, a level of dream access while you're awake, which is certainly beneficial because the the biggest challenge of dreams is you often just don't remember them. Yeah, if you can experience them while you're awake, you can start to capture a, a deeper level of some of the emotional insights that uh, you know your your psychology is trying to unravel while you're in this dreamlike state. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as we went through the the deeper psychological or, or not the psychological the deeper uh, receptor profile for what exactly do these compounds do. The one that really stood up to us, which is our theory for where most of the impact comes from, is the receptor that's known as the imidazoline receptor. Imad imidazoline receptor. Okay. Tell us about that. It's a I highly understudied receptor. <laughs> but tell yeah. me, okay, why is that important? Yeah, it's a highly understudied receptor that deserves much more credit and for a long time was thought to be just another type of one of the uh, the adrenergic receptors. Um, its structure is is very uh, interesting and, and particularly the the uh, imidazoline 2 receptor is one that has been implicated in pain perception. So it has been studied for its analgesic properties. Um, but pain, of course, then uh, is uh, has its corollary that is related to the overall perception of consciousness um, and, and, and feeling. Um, and uh, it, the the thing that's most unique about the beta carbolines is they are the strongest known agonist to the imidazoline receptor. Um, nothing synthetic that's been created has been able to uh, the approach the level of selectivity nor the high level of binding, particularly to the I2R receptor. Um, mm -hmm. So it's our, our belief here, based upon some of the the different studies with uh, with blockers, that this is the one that's particularly implicated in the dreamlike state. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So imidazoline is a neurotransmitter? 
or yeah yeah it is uh, uh primarily found actually in the intestinal system since you know we think with much more than our brains um but that's the the, the greatest prevalence i think is, is in the small intestine okay and and it's involved with analgesia and pain perception as well as possibly dream processing and, and that sort of thing how come this thing has not received more attention it sounds like a fascinating novel target target for for beta carbolines and possibly other compounds that might be developed from beta carbolines i mean this is huge how come nobody's paying attention to it other than Vicetta, of course but yeah yeah, there have been a few groups behind this, and here's where I'll have put on perhaps my my cynical hat for my my uh, also theory behind why I believe that is is uh, for a lot of the good research that has come out of a, a number of academic institutions behind this um, for for I want to say a period of about ten or twenty years there was a a fairly in, intense level of, of study to try and create a synthetic compound that would be uh, an, an agonist of the imidazoline receptors, and I think the key reason behind it is because so much of modern pharmaceuticals is based upon developing not necessarily the best drug for treating the human body or brain, but the best drug for intellectual property. Yes, exactly. You've got to be able to patent. But these beta-carbolines, so do, uh, apparently they are good agonists for the imidazoline receptor. Yeah, the strongest. And, and what what are the beta carbolines that are best at this? The the classical ones, armine, harmaline, or more obscure, structurally uh, different ones? Yeah, harmine specifically is still the strongest one. So out of all the synthetics that are out there, so I think like reserpine does have some level of affinity for it. Uh, a couple of the other um, uh, ones uh, that have uh, that are still under some actually even clinical study have uh, affinity, but nothing is actually proven to be stronger than just harmine itself. I think harmaline has a stronger affinity to midazoline uh, receptor to John. No. Uh, yeah, it's. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I I thought it was harmine was the strongest. Harmaline was even less yeah, so. I mean, harmaline is like very strong. And there's some work, um, Dennis, that um, from some, from some researchers who have been working on imidazoline that they inject imidazoline for acetic acid, you know, to rodents, and the result was this hypnotic. Uh, you know, basically effect uh, that is like exactly like a resembling hypnotic state, resembling sleep that was followed by some type of seizure type activity in rodents. So this is also something that, again, kind of is is in, con in congruence with you know with the effect that we we think you know imidazoline two receptors has. But the most interesting work actually comes from the work of Claudio Naranjo back in nineteen. Uh, 64. He has uh, this book called The Healing Journey. And yeah. those who don't know Claudio Naranjo, he was a psychotherapist, uh, a psychiatrist, a Chilean psychiatrist who uh, was running this clinical trial that, you know, basically he, well, he was receiving referrals from the uh, patients with major depressive disorders that there were no, no, no other intervention had worked on those. So they, what he did was that he injected a intravenous um, dose of 10-methoxyharmaline into these, uh, uh, you know, these patients. And it was, I guess, only some of them, there were twice, but most of them, there was only one experience. And, and this chapter of this book is called The, uh, the Harmaline and uh, Collective Unconscious. It's a very interesting chapter. It's a trip reports of three of these uh, uh, patients and and then and the conclusion is very interesting. Most of the 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 subjective effect is around a physical you know relaxation, a tendency to withdraw from the environment, you know, a feeling of a certain numbness that you know, opens you to extremities, and a very visual actually image. You know, it's exactly like hallucination, uh, hallucination, and imagery hallucination that they got under this dreamy state. So this is kind of like the most relevant work about the injection of a hermaline compound into, uh, you know, basically intravenously, which is, which which acts very quickly. And, um, and then the relation of that into, you know, basically something which is more like an interpersonal experience, which is more like a Jungian archetypes, because most of these, exactly like ayahuasca, you know, like most of 
uh, these patients saw uh, images of, let's say, um, people that they had never met before, like Indians or like birds or like, let's say, dark-skinned men, death, you know, or circular, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, imagery around the uni unity or oneness. And this was kind of a common in, in the experience of most of his, his patients. So that is how and Naranjo actually relates this experience or this dreamlike state that you kind of consciously meet the age of unconscious. And this is not the personal unconscious, this is the collective unconscious that you have been inherited, not necessarily acquired, or it's not part of your conscious that's been repressed. And um, and I, I kind of like that, that kind of aligns very well with the uh, Jungian theory of different archetypes that he he posits that way. You know, I uh, of course I was aware of a bit of Naranjo's work because he actually, interestingly enough, in this connection, he was one of the presenters at ESPD, the original ESPD, oh, the original. In 1967. You know, he had a chapter on exactly this topic, and you know. I have to relook at. I may have to eat some crow here because I had kind of dismissed it, you know this this report because it was a report of the patient's reaction, and my response, my sort of original take was, uh, this is not a controlled experiment. You know, you're going to give people compounds that that and tell them that it comes from this jungle vine, and you know the whole context of of that, of course, they're going to see jaguars and snakes and that sort of thing, even though they're urban, you know, residents of Santiago, Chile, and probably never got near the jungle. But maybe I was uh, not too fair with him. I mean, he certainly was a pioneer. That's really very interesting. Uh, so, do you think that, you know, right now, the whole uh, psychotherapeutic community is excited about psychedelics, you know, and, and talking about the new therapeutic paradigms for depression and PTSD and uh, all of these things, you know, uh, addictions and so on. The big problem that a lot of these companies are facing is they'd love to be able to use psilocybin, but they can't. It's still illegal. I mean, you could only use it in clinical trials. Eventually, it may be legalized for, for clinical use. So a lot of these uh, therapists, for lack of a better medicine, have turned to ketamine. But maybe under the right circumstances, these beta-carbolides, these imad Imidazoline agonists, uh, I mean, could they potentially be used psychotherapeutically? And have you done any trials in that respect? And, uh, or do you plan to? What, what's the status of that? It seems like if you could bring a medicine, you know, forward, it's, it's not prohibited, it's not scheduled, you know, so you're not crossing any legal barriers. Uh, and potentially, if it has a therapeutic effect, you've got, I mean, then you have a, a tremendous, uh, you know, patient base that, uh, that would be interested in this. What, what's, how, what are you, what are you doing? Are you pursuing this? Yeah, the, 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 maybe the funny part about like some of these, um, you know, pharmacological intervention that exists in nature is that like they don't receive that much you know, interest from, you know, from the medical uh, community, because as, as we said, like, because they can't be, these are natural compounds, they can be patented and um, specifically like investors, they want to protect their, you know, capital, you know, and that's where maybe, you know, something like this that could have a high potential, specifically with, with the work of Naranjo, you know, let's say, I'm sure like there might be you no know, other researchers that are still they're currently working on these that are not even published. But um but yeah, you know, this could be something that um specifically knowing the process and the mechanism of action and how in in what 
subjective state of mind, let's say the psychotherapy could be present to help these uh, these patients. That could be, uh, you know, a, a very plausible, uh, you know, therapeutic solution. Um, yeah, I, g- I guess for, for the listeners of this 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 podcast, I refer them to read the the chapter of Harmaline and uh, Collective Unconscious from the Healing Journey by Claudia Naranjo, which uh, she actually has, you know, elaborated this three of the, the experience of three of these, these patients. But back to what you said, um, about, you know, let's say comparison of psilocybin specifically now that it has received a lot of attention in bars versus beta carbolines. Um, I think the, the subjective effect of the, of psilocybin is definitely more interesting, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, let's say the. Uh, the psychedelic effect, you know, like around the the flush of, you know, just high entropic thoughts, you know, that that allows you to look into things, you know, from uh, different aspects. Let's say when you have this uh, interconnectedness of, let's say, different part of your 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 memory. Uh, so those are very new experiences versus. Uh, the beta carbolin experience is more like you know any type of lucid dreaming that you may you may have at one night. You know, it's just like you are not consciously going toward that. But let's say if you have a, a pharmacological uh, solution for that, like that, that that you invoke this or you you inspire this state that let's say you are consciously present at the age of you know just connecting to the unknown, to the unconscious, and and then you have to. At the same time, you have to psychologically be in, be in a position that you can, you know, process that, not not go crazy, but just by just you know being exposed to to, to more unknown in your life. Uh, I guess that's where you know mostly the the work of psychotherapy comes, and maybe the screening for psychotherapy comes. But definitely, uh, we believe that beta carbolines are overlooked and they have a very high potential and that's why we started to bring into market the supplements of basically just with the main uh, compounds of beta carbolines around this again um, uh, this kind of um, you know practice of mindfulness where you consciously want to again like learn and receive from the unknown about yourself you know it's just kind of like bringing as as uh as Jung actually puts the individuation you know concept around like how you move from your ego toward yourself like these are some practices that you can just define yourself in the in the in the bigger context of the universe uh so these compounds under magi are are formulated to help with that um uh John do you want to maybe address a little bit about like what they do and yeah, a little bit of what they do, and I think uh, one portion that we also want to talk a little bit about is how do we come up exactly with our formulations, and this comes to our heritage of beginning in the drug development field, which um, originally working with some controlled substances. Now, of course, everything that's launched under Magi is uh, is uncontrolled and um, has the approval to be sold uh, across a fairly rigorous uh, safety profile that we have done our, our, ourselves. Um, but the the approach for how we come up with our dosages is very similar and, and inspired really by you know, by Shulgin, by uh, some of the the early Magi and many of the oldest practitioners, which is really just self uh, self uh, experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, rather than um, uh, than synthesizing something novel, then taking it to try and see what it does to to ourselves, which is Shulgin's approach here. And our approach has been more out of our lab using this extraction technology, what are some of these novel plants or sometimes even non-novel plants that have been known for a long time, but when you start mixing uh, their different alkaloids together, um, this receptor map, when you combine, you know, for example, beta carboline with another well-known and just, you know, off the shelf uh, uh, um, uh, compound may give a very different subjective experience. And, you know, through our own approach of trying to map that subjective experience back to the receptors, back to the actual neurobiology is how we've come up with the, the very specific dosing um, for our four different products. Right, right. So this is how, I mean, so this also is the, is another possible, uh, pathway to intellectual property and patentability. You've, you focused on polypharmacology. You're focused on proprietary formulations, combinations of these natural compounds, beta carbolines and others. So, so you know, I mean, as a company, of course, you have to be concerned about uh, 
uh, you know, patentability and uh, and uh, intellectual property. I mean, you have have to produce value for your investors, but just in terms of the uses of these things, what I am hearing here as you talk about the effects and the way they potentially might be used, you know, it was either Freud or Jung, I think it was Freud, he said a lot of dumb things, but one thing he said was dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And, uh, dream and pointing to a clearly therapeutic role for dreams, you know, to, and uh, many cultures, of course, put dr dreams at the top, you know, I mean, uh, the, what the shaman dreams, what the, what the patient may dream if they're being treated by a shaman. Uh, so, so it seems like just these, these formulations may work in the context of therapy, you know, not necessarily like psilocybin, like a psychedelic, where you take you take it once or twice, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't smoke anymore, or if something like that—a dramatic effect. But if people are have situations where it needs more extensive psychotherapy to work out deep trauma around, you know, whatever. I mean, the the these kinds of uh, mental. I wouldn't call them disorders, but mental dysfunctions in some ways. More call for extended psychotherapy. It's not something that's going to happen in one or two sessions. It takes time. But it seems very likely that these compounds could really facilitate that. And I think that would be, that would be very interesting. And uh, I think that my guess is there are a number of therapists that would like to uh, work with you on this to see if these therapies could be worked out. And for all I know, you already are working with some. But but that would be a uh, that would be a viable direction forward. I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dennis. I would stop not just at, at dreams, but the the other key portion or the other key practice, which is uh, is is beneficial not just for a therapeutic standpoint, but also for just the maintenance of a healthy psychological and mental state. Of course, is also just meditation. Right, right. For meditation, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. the, the compounds are the the formulations and the compounds are uh, very promising. Yeah, uh, something else I was just thinking about was we, you were speaking there is, you know, back to early Tang Dynasty, there was a period in, in Chinese medicine where doctors, they were compensated as doctors in the in healthcare rather than in sickness care of what we're accustomed to, meaning that they were compensated when you were healthy and you stopped paying them when you were sick. <laughs> right. That's how it should be. <laughs> that's that's not a revenue model that's going to work in modern. No, unfortunately not. But uh, it was, I was thinking about that as you were speaking because it's uh, it's while well, there's certainly this beneficial uh, element of helping the AE have a, a deeper level of vivid or lucid dreams to experience some of the the uh, emotional challenges in a safe space um, or, or in addition to some of the insights that you can garner from meditation as a part of a therapeutic process, even as a as a proactive health process. That's really how we have originally um, started our, uh, our formulations here is for the conscious and the mindful community that are trying to better understand themselves and reach their own level of deeper insight about themselves, whether right. through you know, right. meditation or the, the, the night version of meditation, which is dreaming. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that, uh, that these, uh, these, these formulations could work well as an adjunct to, uh, uh, the kind of work that Alexandre does, for example, with the sound immersion therapy and that sort of thing. I would think that they would fit together very compatibly with that. And uh, if you come to New York as you're going to, you can talk to him. You know, he, he'd be willing to, he uh, would be, I'm sure, willing to give it a try with some of the groups that he works with. So that's something to keep in mind. You know, we can we can discuss it with him. Have you sent him any of these? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is a good reminder. I need to ping him to get some feedback from him. <laughs> yeah, you did send him some. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you good, good, good. Well, I now that I have a better picture of what uh, what to expect, I'll uh, 
I promise I'll do my homework, and uh, by the time I see you in New York, I'll have uh, I'll have some subjective impressions to share with you. So, looking forward to that. Yeah, for uh, for for the listeners here, I think the thing we haven't talked about here is actually what are our products and what are our current four products and what else that we're working on. So maybe we should spend a little time going to some of that. Sure, let's talk about that. Yeah, the the two most unique products that we have. The first one, which is actually, um, uh, uh, Shaheen, you, uh, I think it would be helpful for you also to provide some of the actual cultural context behind their names, but is known as Stard, uh, which is our, our meditation aid. Um, this is one that is more of a mini dose than a micro dose, and has been formulated with a very select group of beta carbonyls here in a in a particular dosage and a ratio here. So that uh, rather than the traditional approach to microdosing or mini dosing of helping with your productivity, I would say it actually does the opposite. It helps with your non-productivity. Uh, <laughs> and, and why would that be useful? Well, that is particularly useful when you're trying to meditate and your own monkey brain is cycling through all these thoughts and anxieties. And, yep. and this is exactly back to the original use of uh, of Homa by the Magi here in um, using this in meditation before an open fire in order to maintain this open level of a mind. Absolutely. And now, there's a lot to be said for non-productivity, for, for disengaging, but disengaging in a very deliberate and conscious way, in a certain way, because we are distracted. I think in our culture, more than ever, we're distracted by all the stimuli that come to us, you know, particularly through the internet. It's, I mean, it, you know, it, it's great to shut off all the screens and look at the inner screen for a while and see what's going on there. So, okay, this sounds good. What about the next one? Yeah, uh, the last thing I want to say about that, I, I love exactly what you said there. I just finished reading Oliver Berkman's last uh, book, 4,000 Weeks, where he talks a little bit about how in Aristotle and the Greeks, they actually saw leisure as the most divine pursuit of man. Um, and it's because leisure is very different from how we define it today, it wasn't us sitting playing video games. It's actually really the pursuit of just nothingness for itself, of just discovering yourself. And he thought it's truly valid as opposed to activities such as work. What you're doing is goal-directed. Like, leisure is there for the purpose of itself. It's autotelic. And mm -hmm. that is exactly the, the most rewarding part of why we actually undergo meditation. Yes, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, we work so hard in order to have more leisure time. You know, and and like we feel like we we, you know, we have this very peculiar relationship to work, you know, and it's like you know you know, if you just devote time to meditation or self development or reflection, I mean, our culture is changing in a lot of ways. These things used to be devalued, you know, and not valued, you know. Uh, but now I think with the emergence of psychedelics, so. Uh, you know, slowly our culture is beginning to recognize the value of inner states, basically. Reflection, meditation, self-knowledge, self-development. So this is all a healthy thing, you know, but it takes time to get accepted into a culture, especially one like ours, you know, where the main drug is coffee. You know, we're the coffee achievers. We like stimulants, you know, and that's the, and that's a reflection of the way that we relate to, uh, you know, our work and everything else. It's like if you're not focused, stimulated, you're not doing your job, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we're, we need to evolve away from that. Yeah. Well, um, John, do you want to go through Mang as well, and maybe I can? Yeah, maybe just a quick intro, and then I want you, Shane, uh, maybe it'd be helpful to talk a little bit about some of the cultural context. But the, the second most unique product we have is Mang, which is also a uh, a mini dose more than a micro dose. And this one, I'd say, with a similar intention of a start, also meant for the unproductivity, but meant for the unproductivity for you to take before you go to sleep at night. Um, and through some of our own studies of measuring brain waves and the state of uh, of of uh, what we would expect to uh, occur during REM sleep, which is characterized by a higher level of high-frequency gamma beta, uh, wavelengths. Um, this is actually uh, facilitated and improved um, through supplementation uh, with uh, the Meng formulation um, when you take it before you sleep at night. And the exact uh, uh, purpose of that is to help you have more vivid and especially lucid dreams when you're in your REM phase. Okay. So these mini-doses formulated for mini doses. So these are doses that if I take it once, 
I'm going to notice something. Something will happen that's noticeable, right? As opposed to the microdose where is it happening? Isn't it happening? You can't really tell. You just sort of have faith that it's doing something. So what you wouldn't recommend or would you recommend combining these things? Is that a good idea or use them separately in series or uh, how would you recommend uh, the people use these? Yeah, certainly separately. Um, um, in series is, is okay as well. But if the if your objective is to actually feel something more than many one rather than combining a mini plus a micro, the simplest way is just take more than many. Right. Take more of the mini. Okay. Okay. So tell me about the uh, the uh, micro products. Yeah, the two microdose formulations we have, one of them is actually named HOMO, and it's named HOMO specifically in reference to the actual use of uh, of reaching a deeper level of sleep. Um, so that one is a, is a deep sleep aid where we have formulated that with its, uh, its level of alkaloids there that rather than trying to increase a level of high-frequency gamma wavelengths during sleep, it's actually trying to inf- uh, increase your lowest frequency, which is your delta uh, uh, wavelength when you're in a deep sleep stage. And that's meant uh, more for the reparative nature of, of what's happening with your brain's lymphatic system to help clean out all the junk that's been accumulating during the day and to help you know, your organs to recover um, rather than necessarily something that's more for, for psychological insight. It's really meant much more for physiological recovery. Okay. And what about the other mini product? Uh, and the last mini product is called uh, Ameritats, uh, and that is uh, is probably the most classic of uh, of a kind of a of a daily nutritional supplement. Uh, but rather than nutritional supplement for your your body's health, it's much more for your brain's health. Uh, and this is really for getting a, a specific uh, quantity of beta carbolines um, uh, into your uh, own neurochemistry, given all of their well-researched and extensive uh, uh, length of neuroprotective neurogenesis properties from you know, regulation of regulatory enzymes, inhibition of some um, of proteins that have been implicated into neurodegenerative disorders. So this is your, you know, for cognition, cognition cognitive development or con- prevention of cognitive deficits, this is your anti-dementia uh, formulation a certain way. Yeah, I better get started on that one right away. Uh, <laughs> I, I can feel it coming on. Well, <laughs> it's never too late. Oh, we thought about this. Well, with yeah. the mini products, uh, the the or rather the micro products, uh, you have to take them for a while before you perceive a response, right? Whereas the yeah. mini products are pretty much that's like a low dose, perceptible. But the micro products, I'd have to take it for a couple of weeks before I'd really notice much effect. Is that is that pretty much how it would work? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, the mini products you'll uh, sorry you, the 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 mini products you'll you'll most people will feel in about ten to fifteen minutes, and then the duration of it will be you know forty forty to fifty minutes. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. That's at that time with the sleep products, hopefully you're asleep by then. So yeah, well, this is this is fantastic. This is these are very interesting for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I can quickly uh, refer to what, what, what their name means. And some of them are very interesting. So it started, actually, uh, I saw with Mang. So Mang was a very strong psychoactive potion that uh, basically was given by Zoroaster to the king of his time, Wishtas, which is, they're saying that it was a combination of Homa, which um, it could be whatever the botanical identity of Homa was, plus Mang, which before 12th century, Mang in Iran was, you know, uh, black henbane. Basically, if we assume that, uh, you know, Homo was beta carbonins, so basically it's a combination of beta carbonins, which were on the refernic, plus, you know, some dissociative, you know, like uh, atropine, you know, or escopolamine products. So that was, that's how it was just like they put, were putting, you know, the uh them you know into like a long sleep so but the mind that we have is nothing to do with that strong potion but that's where the inspiration of the name comes from and and the start is actually the definition in Pahlavi language of a state of mind which this is a like kind of this it, it means that like to spread out to 
to something larger to spread out you know, to a broader consciousness and that's why we uh we kind of like name our meditation supplement a start which you know this kind of like uh inspire you know invokes this 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 state and uh the emirtat in uh, again in avestan language means immortality which is our microdose or uh neurogenesis and and neuroprotection and homo as john explained is more like a unique product know that is around you know the quality of a sleep sleep you know and the way that we developed that it was just like mostly doing a lot of work around you no know, sleep tracking you know and brainwave uh, you know tracking and then uh kind of like uh more of you know uh, working on data you know to get into uh formulate these but something that is very interesting around major you know which we like to also uh just put out with these uh, supplement is that is not we we don't want them to be only a supplement but like a supplement and practice so we want to um, develop this practice of meditation for our consumer or develop the practice of you know like going after you know finding their own uh blind spots you know or uh anything that they they want you know their life to strive on or through the med like meditation or let's say um lucid dreaming and uh, with that at, for example in the there are two psychedelic actually conferences that are coming one is the map science conference that you're gonna be hopefully there as well you know in in denver in in june as well as another conference by psychedelics today at the end of march that we we host this group meditation that are supplemented by our start and we are hopeful to just kind of like use that as a tool to uh to uh kind of like build community around these mindfulness practices. Right, right. And that does seem like a great application. That's really, I think, what I had in mind when I referred to the way they might fit into therapy. I mean, it's not that they would necessarily fit into therapeutic regimens like we think of that, but, but into meditation practices. So meditation is uh, something that has to really be learned in order to integrate it into your life. And it seems like these uh, these products might be very appealing to people that uh, that teach mindfulness meditation and that sort of thing. I have just the person who would be happy to help you with this, but we'll leave that offline and I'll get back to you. But uh, there's a gentleman I know who's taught uh meditation mindfulness meditation for many years is he's a good friend of mine and he'd be sure happy to work with these great awesome yeah so uh well this is and also uh, i wanted to ask you so do you have does the magi website you have a, a website or is it just this you have a special website where people can learn about these projects like Magi.com or something like that. Yeah, I should probably should have put this in, in on the background there. Uh, it's actually ancestralmagi.com uh, is the name of our uh, our shop where people can go online. Magi.com. Okay, so people can learn about these projects products off that website. Okay. Yeah, we have a, a fairly robust knowledge base uh, on the product pages as well as our, our blog, which we continually uh, populate with some of our own new discoveries. And um, uh, this is uh, what's uh, what's next for us. And what we're also most excited about is we've released our first few products based on uh, on beta carbolines. And we've got a, a number of other products that are coming on the way that are really also just based on exactly what we've talked about here in polypharmacology. Um, using all legal products always will be a, a supplement that's available off the shelf and can be purchased and used uh, um, in your own daily practices. Um, uh, and some of them are combining beta carbolines with other just conventional fruits and, uh, and, and plants that have been well known, but can provide some very unique uh, properties when combined together. Right, right. Food and medicine, there's often a fine line. There's often not that much different. You know, they... They uh, complement each other. Who was it? Uh, was it uh, Dioscorides who said, "Let your food be your medicine"? Yeah. Uh, so, right. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. This has been a very interesting conversation. 
Uh, so it was our pleasure and um, thanks for giving us this opportunity. And again, in the first place with ESPD 55 to inspire both of us to dig deeper into our um, ancient histories and like kind of bring these up. So it's an ongoing journey and like it, it has no end. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we look forward to the next ESPD conference. I don't know whether it'll be ESPD 60, probably sooner than that, maybe ESPD 57.5 or something, <laughs> but uh, certainly look forward to, uh, you know, your discoveries that you're in process of making and we'll be happy to invite you back to the podcast downstream and, uh, and we'll see you pretty soon in New York, hopefully. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Eduardo. Great. Thanks, Dennis. Oh, is there maybe one last thing here? Uh, should, should we also uh, uh, mention for any of uh, any of the listeners here a special coupon code for uh, followers of Dennis? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so um, you, you can just use as, uh, um, you know, like for a 20% discount, you know, like you can use just like Dennis McKenna. This is a uh, the spelling of um, Dennis McKenna and then... Um, that's going to be the the coupon that they can use, you know, uh, in just different. My ways. name, no spaces. Yeah. yeah, no, just Dennis McKenna, just all together. Okay, and of course, I'll get that kickback coming back from you if there's people who buy that. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. It's all right. That that's good. Maybe that'll sell a few more. So, okay, thanks for letting us know about that, and. Uh, We'll keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dennis. Okay. See you in New York. Thank you for listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at McKenna.academy.